This is Containers, an audio documentary about how the global economy works through the prism of shipping at the Port of Oakland, sponsored by Flexport. In the first six episodes of this podcast, we've covered a lot of ground. The innards of global trade, the development of containers. We've met sailors and tugboat captains and activists and artists. I hope the global economy makes a little more sense to you. It's people and rhythms and oddities. For our final two episodes, we're going to look deeply at a phenomenon that has profoundly shaped the waterfront. Automation. Automation is more than a robot waltzing into a job site and replacing a human on the factory line. It's more like one system of work replaces another. And when it does, whole categories of jobs become obsolete. That's what happened when cargo began to be shipped inside big steel boxes instead of stuffed into the holds of a ship. We talked about this in episode one. Containerization is automation, just with a different name. In this episode... We're going to go very deep on the effects of containerization, not just the economic ones, but the cultural ones, how technology transformed what it meant to work on the waterfront. While containerization transformed trade and industry, it was a death knell for the kind of work that thousands of men on the waterfront had done, loading and unloading ships. Longshoremen's way of life was, more or less, wiped out in the space of 15 years, from maybe the late 60s, to the early 80s. I wanted to understand what the longshoremen had gone through, having their jobs disappear or change completely, but none of the books or articles that I read or union officials that I talked to seemed to bring me any closer to their world. Until I happened upon a film from 1979 that had been posted on the Internet Archive. Clocking in at 17 minutes and without any narration, it was called Longshoremen at Work. And it proved to be the rabbit hole I was looking for, the portal into the world of the longshoremen at the height of the replacement of old breakbolt cargo ships with new container ones. The film starts with a few paragraphs of text on a screen. This work of art spans 25 years of ILWU longshore history in San Francisco and Oakland from 1969 to 1994. Its images and sounds recount a dramatic story of change in our working lives, our industry, and our port. First produced in 1979, it was shown at poetry readings presented by the waterfront writers and artists. That was the only context I had. The film itself is a sequence of photographs which dissolve one into the next. As it opens, we hear the voices of men sorting out who is in a longshore gang. The jazzy number kicks up on the soundtrack as we see San Francisco in the 70s. We see the docks, we see ships. The music drops away. We hear a man yell, all right, let's go. All right, let's go. And images of the men trudging up a noisy gangway fill the screen. time to work. There's coffee to be unloaded. Next, we see photographs from inside a ship filled with coffee. Men's voices drift in and out. There are winches whining. The sounds of piers. Forklifts running to and fro. 
Eleven minutes in, we see a nearly empty ship, the last piece of cargo awaiting the lift from the bottom deck. The next shot is a container, and the music changes. It is dark and electronic. plays over several shots of the container terminal built by Sealand, the seminal container shipping company in Oakland. The message is clear. The aliens have descended. The men's voices become unintelligible through radio static. transitions into a final movement set to adagio for strings. We see men's bodies throwing bags of coffee hunched over, the light catching their backs in blue work shirts. More pictures of men appear, dark and somber, as if gathering at a wake for the old longshore. When it ended, it took me a minute to process what I had seen, This was an incredibly unusual piece of work, and I could not have been more intrigued by the waterfront writers and artists who seem to be as fascinated by containerization as I am, but from a totally different perspective. To learn more about the film, I turned to the three men who made it, Michael Vodder, Frank Silva, and Brian Nelson. I've come to know all of them really well, and their perspective on the waterfront and technology has been invaluable in the production of this series. Brian Nelson is taciturn but funny, smart and thoughtful. His photos in the film are mostly abstract and angular. Frank Silva is an avuncular, sweet human. He focused on the bodies of the men at work, the way they folded and pushed themselves around the cargo and machinery. And then there's Michael Vodder, an old student radical at Stanford turned longshoreman. He's more your classic dock worker, loves drinking and storytelling and playing horses. His pictures are usually from inside the hull, focused on the structures and angles of this tremendously weird workplace, the steel box of the ship. They were all members of ILWU, the powerful union that's ruled West Coast dock work since 1934, and they'd all gotten involved with the waterfront writers and artists through a fellow longshoreman named Bob Carson, who founded the group. Technically, he was a clerk. The group began by holding poetry readings all around San Francisco, and the three photographers decided to make a slideshow with a soundtrack that they'd screen to close the readings. Carson, who had a master's degree in writing, even though he worked on the docks, had also managed to get a collection of stories and poems that he edited published by Harper and Rowe. In the early 1980s, that generated a spike of attention that reached all the way to NBC's Today Show. We came to this spot on the San Francisco waterfront to tell you about some of the men who worked here, longshoremen. But these men did more than load and unload cargo. They were writers. For Carson, the project was about taking back literature from the ivory tower poets and establishing the working class writer's place in the canon. My personal feeling is that a lot of the modern American poetry is a kind of inbred or poetry about poetry instead of just a pure poem. But from the photographers I talked with, really the group was how they processed the destruction of the old waterfront by containerization. 
Beyond the dock worker stereotypes of tough dudes writing work poems, there was an unsettling and new reality that the guys were reckoning with. Their lives were being automated. One poet, Gene Dennis, even signaled it in the poem he read on the Today Show. My soul has been sucked dry and suffocated by the shadow of a 40-foot container, restored by outrage at the mindless technology unleashed by cash register computers. So logical, so methodical, casting aside bent bodies with poisoned lungs to proceed with greed. So technologically correct. A heritage caved in by the ponderous pounding of some psychopathic robotonic beast. The system of containerization required a tenth of the labor of the old breakable cargo methods. Jobs were going away. The culture of the longshore, all those men working on big teams, loading and unloading ships, the drinking and the hanging out with the sailors, all that stuff was on the way out. And the guys knew it. This work was their cry of anguish. I wanted to find out about life as a longshoreman from a longshoreman. So I met up with Brian Nelson. He lives in a small, tasteful house on a street adjacent to the BART in El Cerrito, north of Berkeley, California. Nelson created the soundtrack for the film from recordings he and a group of students had made on the waterfront. And Nelson told me that he'd kept some analog remnants, his words, from the project. Nelson and his wife, Manya, greeted me at the door. He's nothing like you'd expect a dock worker to be. He's a slight man, very precise, and of a deeply artistic temperament. Recording sounds on the waterfront changed the whole way he thought about life, he told me. Now he's always listening to his environment. Sound of wind going through leaves, the ocean, um any number of machines that have some kind of interest, uh, weird sounds. Uh, the sound uh, that chicken makes when it's being cooked, that's a nice sound. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, something that a personal like that, you know, just uh, soaking in the tub and uh, after a hard day's work, you're cold, and you hear the sound of something cooking. It's pretty nice. Nelson's father was a longshoreman. His uncle was a longshoreman. His brother was a longshoreman. So he became a longshoreman, even though he went to college at Berkeley. After lunch, Nelson told me that he had something to show me. And it was the kind of moment that I dream about as a journalist. Nelson led me to a table on which there were a couple dozen tapes, all with little labels like Potrero Hill Reading 579 and Memories of Mechanization and Valencia Street Pier 27 Coffee. It was a legitimate trove. A trove. He'd been saving the original recordings he'd made to soundtrack the film for almost 40 years, along with recordings of original performances of the waterfront writers and artists reading their work. No one aside from Brian had heard these tapes. And he hadn't listened to them for years and years and years. We weren't even really sure how they'd sound. So we stuck one in a tape player and waited. Suddenly, voices coalesced out of the noise of time. The first thing in the morning... 
It's a longshoreman telling a story about a drunk Irish mate on a ship. Goddamn father guy at 7.30 in the car. Son of a bitch. And I fucking, you know, he goes over here, gets the tube out, he pulls it out, and he takes the fucking plane, he goes, you know, and starts pulling everything apart. We hear the men around him chuckling as he talks about winning the fight with the mate. Shove it up your ass and make your own play. Well, wait a minute now. <laughs> That was the first minute of tape that we digitized at Brian's house. Over the next couple of months, we spent dozens of hours in his basement listening to the recordings as they ran into my audio recorder. It was, I mean, it is, to my eyes, a unique archive that covers the moment in the late 1970s and early 80s when containerization accelerated through the waterfront. I'm fairly confident that there is nothing like it in the world. And it was the raw material for the remarkable film I'd seen on the Internet. There was stuff from Out in the World, which Brian had recorded out on the docks and inside ships, winches and forklifts, and the strange acoustics of being inside a steel-hulled ship. What struck me most were the little rich interactions between the men just doing their jobs. Every bit of office chatter ends up feeling so intimate and maybe a touch kind of otherworldly. I didn't like the old days. Yeah, Christ almighty. Used to have those ships laying out an anchorage out here and down the south end of the bay for pricing, all waiting for first to get in. I recognized bits and pieces of sound from the film. They'd cut it all together on old reels and tape decks, and they played it as the two projectors showed alternating photographs. Nelson had a very short 8-millimeter film clip of one of the readings. A man stands on stage in a long, low-slung room, telling a story about a cat. After he was finished, they would have played the audience the slideshow. They did this dozens of times through those Carter-Reagan years. I wish I could have seen a waterfront writers and artists reading in person. But Brian has the next best thing, taped performances. These were another piece of the tremendous time capsule that I'd stumbled upon. And when we come back, you'll hear one. Containers is brought to you by Flexport. Flexport is a freight forwarding company built around modern technology. They help over 2,500 companies run better global supply chains. Check them out for an insider's view of the shipping industry at flexport.com. We've been learning about a group of longshoremen who banded together to preserve the culture of the waterfront because they could see containerization was wiping out their way of life. They were called the Waterfront Writers and Artists, and they held regular poetry readings, and a lot of their work had to do with their changing labor. George Benet was the star of the Waterfront Writers and Artists poetry readings, and for good reason. He hobnobbed with beat poets, and he hobnobbed with bums. Benet was a lifelong longshoreman, a drunk, a poet. Michael Vodder, one of the longshore artists, was one of Benet's best friends. Uh, so many people loved George and at the same time couldn't stand to be around him. He was like an, one of the worst alcoholics I've probably ever known. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't allow him in their house ever again or the wives because he would just be like an unrepentant pain in the ass. You couldn't walk a block in San Francisco without somebody saying, hey, George. I mean, because he, he knew so many people. 
But uh, the most remarkable thing about him is wherever you were, particularly at the racetrack, he would seek out the one person who was like the most depressed, lonely, broken, broke, having lost, you know, just just bottom of the barrel. He would always go over to that and include them. Here, on stage, Benet is describing an exchange he had with the beat writer Lou Welch. He said, your trouble is you are a short, fat, alcoholic, longshoreman from the Mission District, a cigar-smoking, horse-lying son of a bitch, and most of all, an incurable romantic. I told him he was a part-time junkie, a part-time waterfront clerk, a part-time alcoholic, a part-time cynic, a part-time poet, and worst of all, a suburbanite, so he lived in Marin City. Benet was the embodiment of what the mission was for most of the 20th century, a white working-class neighborhood filled with horse-playing sons of bitches. He had many waterfront stories, all classics of the sticking-it-to-the-upper-class genre. Here's just one for the flavor. The setup is that there's this beautiful cat being shipped to Hawaii. And in the crate was a blue Persian cat. And on the side of the crate, it had the cat's name, Snooky. <laughs> How the cat was to be fed, chopped livers, chopped It couldn't be in temperatures that were too hot or temperatures that were too cold. It was a very high-class cat. And while we were hooking up this load, we broke the crate and the cat got out. The cat runs off into all the cargo and loses itself among the crap on the dock. And on this particular pier, they have rats that are about this big, and they are mean, and no sissy cat is going to last one night with those rats. So the guys are scrambling around looking for the cat, and they can't find it. And as we're looking for the cat, we're getting all kind of static from the, from the ship. You know, the walking boss, the gang boss yelled down, he says, fuck the cat. <laughs> we're just ready to give up. The longshoremen were not only part of the working class, they were a distinct culture. There were tons of them. And it was stories like this, repeated, passed down, improved, half-forgotten, mangled, that marked people as part of the group. To be a longshoreman was to know how to load and unload cargo, but also to take on and discharge stories. They had a shared understanding of the city, the world, class conflict, and a moral code with its own unusual components. Let's take a trip back to those times. Back then, a longshoreman's day would start at your local hiring hall in the morning, where you'd pick up your assignment. Then you'd head down to where you'd be working and post up for breakfast and coffee and shooting the shit. I thought you took the pension and retired, for Christ's sake. We've been hiding. I've been over in Oakland. Oh, in Oakland, huh? Hey, come down. Do you know the no, no, I'm not even here today. Oh, you're not on the ship? No. What are you doing today? Just browsing around? Browsing around. Oh, working on my 
Eventually, people would start to organize. They'd try to find out who was in the gang working the ship. You in the gang, Bob? Yeah, I'm in the gang. All right, well, I got me a deal with him, man. I'm in the gang and the man he replaced. Oh, oh, shit. And Steve in the gang, too. Yeah, Steve's in the gang. Shit. The doc, and Rich is coming. His brother brother just came. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Remember, this is breakable cargo, so they're moving pallets and crates and sacks of stuff from or to a ship. As they prepared to board, one of the bosses would let the men know what they'd be encountering. Maybe attention, fellas, for a few minutes before we start the work here, huh? We're starting the ship, we're going to finish it. She's not a heavy ship. I got about 400 tons of cargo on it. Yeah, you got the job before basically the morning meeting if you were headed to a job on the waterfront. You can hear the culture here. It's part football coach speech, part technical transmission, part geopolitical summary. Tea, cocoa powder, and spice. Nothing loose. About 200 sacks of loose golf. These ships aren't carrying much golf because of the political situation they got in East Africa right now. they got an embargo on the coffee there, so... So that situation's straight. Don't be getting this coffee these ships. So let's have a good day and a safe day and try to get out of here in a decent hour. Then you start working. It wasn't always fun. And some of the cargo was like downright disgusting. One of the worst things was hides, freshly cut off animals. Asbestos was nasty too, for obvious reasons. Fish meal, huge rolls of newspaper. There were the diesel fumes too. Maybe it's not surprising that the guys drank themselves through the day sometimes, as Michael Vodder recalls. As longshoremen, it was pretty much a job requirement that you drink uh, back in those days. Now it no longer is. In fact, it's frowned upon, and many guys don't partake anymore, which is quite a contrast with uh, the old days where everybody drank. The you know, standard thing at 8 in the morning was, I'll buy, you fly. Somebody give somebody else the money, and they go get whatever was ordered for the day. Uh, and that was everybody superintendents, walking bosses, right on down to the hold men. Butter was a bit of a rarity on the docks. He was probably the only Stanford guy to work down in the holds after he got kicked out of school. Uh, well, I was, uh, I was in SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. Students Against the War, largely, but it involved other things as well. Support for the Black Panther Party. Uh, Vincent Ramos, uh, Grape Strikers, Cesar Chavez, all that stuff. I was one of the leaders. Got a job on the waterfront and eventually worked his way to running the winches on the ships that pulled the cargo out of the holds after apprenticing with a guy who became his best friend, New Zealand Mike. He's one of a kind. He's from New Zealand. He's got a great accent, a great storyteller, one of the most warm-hearted people I've ever met. And plus, he's the best winch driver we ever had on the waterfront. He became my mentor. He taught me how to drive winches. He used to come around and say... I see you driving up there, I saw the winches going in and out, and I thought, that looks like me. So I knew it was you. Because <laughs> he'd get, he'd, when he, the first days I met him, he came up behind me in the compartment of the crane, stood behind me, put his hands on my hands, and started you know, running through like two joysticks that run the, the up and down, the slough and the boom. So we were partners from then on for about, uh, we drove winches together for about uh, 10 to 15 years. And I don't mind saying, we were probably the most sought-after pair of winch drivers on the waterfront. Though he'd once dreamed of being a revolutionary, 
being a longshoreman, the identity of it, that too racetrack Mike was. At first, you know, my idea was to go there and organize the workers, you know, become a labor organizer. But uh, mainly I just liked being a rank-and-file active guy, and we would participate in, in various issues of the day. He has a favorite waterfront story, too. This one is a little bit about getting over and a little bit about the way race was handled. Keep in mind that in this story, Mike was probably the only white guy. We were working freezer in Alameda. Deep freeze. So you had to, like, everybody had, like, six layers of clothes, you know, sweatshirt, shirt, sweatshirt, undershirt, uh, army jacket, uh, coveralls, and maybe topped off with a big army jacket. And in the freezer, they're unloading these turkeys. Frozen turkeys. There were whole turkeys, big turkeys. They were plucked and gutted, but it was the whole turkey, the head, the feet, everything, all rolled up in a ball and frozen. So this one guy said, man, I'm going to get me one of these turkeys. I want one, I want one of these turkeys. So we, it was a short day. We were down about 3 o'clock. So uh, he does everything, puts the turkey in his gut, wraps, wraps the, uh, his clothes around it, puts a jacket, all that. But then they got detained on the deck for like a good half hour with this poor guy sitting there, big thong turkey on his lap. But he could, there was nowhere to go. So we just did the work, we finished, and then we start the long trek out. About six of us are walking in front of him. You know, we were trying to, like, get him through unnoticed with this big turkey on him. As we approach the guard shack, the guard steps out, he puts his hands on his hips, and he literally fell down on his knees laughing. We all turn around, and here's this big black guy with this, the turkey had thawed. And the head of the turkey, with his long white neck and yellow beak, it's come out of his coveralls and it's swinging between his legs down, down to his knees, swinging back and forth. And everybody, everybody literally fell down laughing. <laughs> the, guard, the guard finally just says, get out of here. Just get out of here. Keep going. <laughs> but it was, and he never lived that down. That was like, man, he's a long, skinny white dick. That's how I got the name, <laughs> Turkey Dick <Nets. laughs> yeah, right. With a beak on it. <laughs> The docks that the waterfront writers and artists encountered were heavily shaped by the union that controls them, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, or the ILWU, as everyone calls it. There have been dock workers in San Francisco from the very beginning of the city in the 1840s. Back then, most of them were guys who jumped ship or simply grown tired of sailing, and they were a casual labor force that gathered on the Embarcadero near Mission and Market, like day laborers do now out on 26th and Cesar Chavez, But in 1934, an Australian named Harry Bridges put together the ILWU and won a brutal battle with the waterfront employers to establish the union after a three-month general strike in which two longshoremen were killed. The union has remained strong ever since. You'll find that some people around the waterfront, once the microphone is off, will confess to hating the ILWU. They call the guys lazy. They say they're the worst dock workers in the world. Even other working-class people take shots at the ILWU. For the men inside, though, it's a beautiful thing, not least because the union was remarkably progressive, especially on the topics of race and ethnicity. Local 10 has always been about half black. Uh, Harry Bridges uh, is, in my mind, was the first person to ever institute affirmative action. Affirmative action came in like late in the 60s, 70s. Harry Bridges started that in the 40s. 
after the war. When uh, there was a huge migration of blacks to northern cities and out here. And uh, he made a point of half the new membership being black. And this sense of racial solidarity penetrated the rank and file. You don't have to be white, you don't have to be black, you don't have to be uh, hi higher education. You, I mean, as long as you were, did your job and protected the union, you were going to be fine. This is Frank Silva, a local 34 clerk, half Mexican, half Portuguese, barrel-chested guy who met me in a simple polo and sandals. For him, the protection of the union let people be more real, more themselves, at work. So what that did is that it allowed everybody to be who they were. In other words, you didn't have to wear certain clothes. You didn't have to, you know, spill the company line or whatever it was. You know, it gave you a sense of brotherhood that was impossible to explain. In 1960, it was clear that more mechanization, which turned out to be containerization, was coming to the waterfront. Harry Bridges cut a deal with the shipping lines and terminals that the ILWU would allow mechanization to take place. In effect, it shrunk the number of union members, but guaranteed that the ones who stayed would make a lot of money in a skilled profession handling heavy machinery. Most registered West Coast longshoremen, much to the consternation of many outside the union, now make between $138,000 and $166,000 a year, according to statistics compiled by the Pacific Maritime Association, which employs ILWU labor. That's up from seventy to $87,000 in 1993. Even with the money having gotten so much better, the guys still miss the old days when the docks were a deeply human place that could know you better than you knew yourself. This is Frank Silva again. I actually found out my grandmother's first name from a truck driver <laughs> when I'm 27 years old. This is the truth. My, grand, my Mexican grandmother, I called her Nana my whole life. I never even thought of what her first name was, right? So this truck driver pulls up, and he's from the West Oakland, where my family was from. He says, uh, how's Rebecca doing? And I said, Rebecca? Uh, what do you mean? He, <laughs> he says, you're Frank Silva, aren't you? I go, yeah, sure I am. He says, well, Rebecca, your grandmother. In my other grandmother's name, I did know her name. Her name was Mary. And I said... Her name ain't Rebecca. He goes, uh, he actually says something like, you dumb shit. <laughs> Your mother's mother's name is Rebecca. This is the truth. So I said, oh, really? <laughs> so I, I called my mom. I said, mom, is, is, mom, is Nana's name Rebecca? He says, oh, yeah, that's her name. <laughs> so that shows you how far back, you know, you kind of fit into the whole picture. You know, God, it was funny. The waterfront was a unique kind of work. It was blue-collar work, but it wasn't routine. It took problem-solving, it took social skills, it took a high tolerance for different types of people. We hear so often that automation eliminates drudgery, and that can be true, obviously. But sometimes interesting work gets wiped out, too. And it's, it's, it's quite complicated, technically. Uh, it takes a lot of skill. And you're always on the fly. You're always uh, kind of adjusting and... Uh, figuring stuff out. So it's, it was always challenging. Vader, Silva, and Nelson's careers almost precisely spanned the era in which containerization took hold. During that time, it went from being a fantastic job that they loved to one that they got used to and tolerated. But they all think that the technological change was inevitable. It pretty much scared the shit out of you, to tell you the truth. I mean, you could... 
you could see that there were just so so many fewer jobs, you know, work that you would have been doing five or six years ago or, or last month even was no longer available. You know what I mean? Um, and then they, the the um, just basically the, uh, the dominance of of the workplace. You know, before when you went on a pier, the dominant force was the people. It was hundreds of guys doing this and doing that, and, you know, palletizing and sorting and loading trucks and loading the ship, and, and it was just it was all about people. It was it was man. It was men doing the work. You know. And as time went on, it became more and more machined, and then it became more and more computerized. So you became subservient, basically, to the power of the of the, of the machine. And that there's nothing going to make you feel good about that. I can tell you that. You know, what they could do though was pass on the human parts of what it was to do the job they did. They could offer their account of what it was to work on the waterfront, of what it was to be a human body and brain in this space. That was why they took the pictures they did and recorded the sounds and made the film, just to show the docs at this moment of great change. I remember one night, this older black lady came up to me, tears running down her face, and she said, you know, my husband worked on the waterfront for 40 years, and every night he'd come home and tell me stories. And in a night after night, and I'd listen, I'd listen, but I never knew what it looked like until I saw this film. And she was just so, she said, my husband died a couple of years ago, and I'm just so thankful to have finally seen what he was talking about, which was uh, probably the biggest uh, personal satisfaction I got out of that whole experience. That would be, like, number one. Because that, that sort of was our intent, was just to show that world and that disappearing and the, the film that we did contrasts all that old day stuff with the containerization, the advent of containerization. So Nowadays, Frank Silva can hardly even go down to the current port of Oakland. I just look at the stuff and I think of everything it was. You know what I mean? The, I mean, I, the Navy base and the Army base, you know, I can't even tell you how many people were working there, man. Just thousands of people from everywhere. I can remember guys um, would bring homemade uh, sweet potato pie. They would bring it to work, little small ones, you know. His wife would make them at home, and he'd sell them for a couple bucks, you know. You hope the hell you were there on Tuesdays because you know he brought them on Tuesdays, (laughs) you know. That kind of stuff. That stuff means something, you know, as time goes on. It's really, really sweet, you know. I was a lucky guy, very lucky guy, you know. Every time I hear that clip from Frank, I can feel my heart swelling with this vision of utopia that seems so finely tuned for me. There's economic justice, racial solidarity, rich culture, opportunity for anyone willing to work right here in Oakland. If Trump supporters have their nostalgic stories about the time they want to go back to, this is my version of a once great America. When I think about it, that's what kept driving me to work on these stories. All of them. To drink margaritas with Mike or talk photographic composition with Frank or stand in Brian's basement talking endlessly about the specifics of microphones and cargo handling. Through them, I could capture a little bit of that place. 
in a chaotic time for the country with a new round of automation almost certainly coming to wipe out new categories of jobs, this is my comforting nostalgia. Because automation pretty much wiped out these guys' world, what they'd known. And here they are, the post-apocalyptic survivors, recounting the better times and the sweet potato pies. But nostalgia's a trap. Nostalgia is a trap. Nostalgia blinds us to the failings of the past. Most obviously, where were the women in these stories anyway? And to the potential of our own time. We are alive now, and the best we can do with the romance of the past is distill the values and visions that intoxicate us into principles for the future we want to make. Next week, in the final episode of Containers, we take on the future of automation on the waterfront and in America with clear eyes and a full heart. Containers is produced and edited by the prodigious nocturnal Jonathan Hirsch. Mandana Mofidi is the director of audio at Fusion Media Group. Today, a special thanks to Manya, Brian Nelson's wife, for putting up with us, taking over her house for whole days at a time, and for reminding us to eat and teaching me how to find hummingbird nests. Still haven't found one, but I'm looking. Also to rogue historians Rick Prellinger and Chris Carlson and the Internet Archive. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Next week's season finale, we're going to visit a robot warehouse and hear from truck drivers about how they feel about self-driving trucks. The way our robot actually works is when we bring a robot to a facility, we make a map of that facility using its laser. Um, And once it has that map, that map is distributed to all the other robots. All right, I'm chasing this robot around this big warehouse in here. He's pretty quick. We also have very exciting news. Um, Jonathan convinced me we should have a party to celebrate the completion of containers. And so we're doing it. April 27th. Uh, that's a Thursday, 7 o'clock, here in Oakland, a place called Oakland Hot Plate. Look it up. There is an Eventbrite. I'll put the link on Twitter and pin it or something. And you should all come. Listeners, welcome. <laughs>